1: As historians the passing of time is really our stock in trade, but even how time passes, or at least how it is understood to pass, has a history. Today we're going to be thinking about how time was reckoned in Tudor England and the timepieces that framed that knowledge. For this is the new age of mechanical clocks and even watches, at least for the elite when the uneven hours of medieval reckoning had been cast aside in favour of time by the clock. And with this cultural shift, timepieces came to have symbolic meanings, and exploring these can give us a profound insight into the mentality of the Tudors. My guest today has done just this, in a journal article that she wittily called Tudor Time Machines. She is Dr. Christina Faraday, a research fellow at Gonville and Caius College, Cambridge, and she focuses especially in her research on art, architecture, and ideas in Tudor England. She's also an Arts and Humanities Research Council BBC New Generation Thinker, which is a scheme for top early career researchers seeking to learn how to present their ideas in accessible ways to new audiences, which fits her very well for explaining to us how we can understand Tudor time. To Faraday, it is an absolute pleasure to welcome you to Not Just the Tudors. It's very exciting to be here. And to have an opportunity to talk to you about your work, this brilliant punning title that you have, Tudor Time Pieces, that we're going to talk about. Maybe we should start, though, by getting a sense of time before the Tudors. Can we talk about how time was reckoned in response
2: to the seasons up until about the 15th century? Absolutely. Actually, this is one of the things that I really love about studying history is the way that it can make you so aware of how many things that you just take for granted as being natural are actually incredibly conventional and there are other ways of doing them basically and timekeeping is one of those so the 24 hour day for example completely arbitrary there is no reason astronomically speaking why there should be 24 hours in the day we get that from the ancient greeks and the ancient romans and they got it from the babylonians But for most of history, the 24-hour day wasn't as we know it. So the daytime was divided into 12 hours, and the nighttime was divided into 12 hours. And of course, the length of daylight varies. This is what was called the unequal hours. So in the north of England, an hour in daylight in winter was about 30 minutes for us, and an hour in the summer was about an hour and a half for us. So It's a completely different way of thinking about time. And of course, it shifts each day. It gets a little longer or a little shorter, depending what time of year you're in. But most people didn't really live their lives minute by minute or hour by hour like we do. The idea of a train leaving at 2.47 or something, it's just not how they existed. The times of prayer, for example, organised by the Catholic Church, there were four main hours in the day. People could organise their time around, they might hear bells, or they might say something like, I'll meet you when the shadow of the tower is 12 feet long or something. It's a very different approach to time than what we're used to. And as society got more complicated it became necessary to have a slightly more objective sense of when times were and when things were. So imagine in an urban centre, you've got this cacophony of bells, alarms, effectively. Alarms come before clocks, strangely enough. You need to know when the market should open. You need to know when to stop work. And there are all these bells that mean different things to different people. And it got so complicated, people say, "Okay, maybe we need some sort of objective sense of time here. And that is what gave rise to the idea of a clock that could keep a sort of more regular, slightly objective, slightly distanced time. But even then, the unequal hours persisted, and they just adjusted the clocks. But it's much more of a faff to adjust a clock hour by hour throughout the year. So equal hours, the idea of dividing a period of time into 24 regular periods, that comes out of the clock, is catalyzed by it, but it's also developing at the same time.
1: I love the idea that a long summer day (laughs) was literally longer. (laughs) You know, it was actually much longer than the short winter day. And it makes sense with the sort of energy of the human body. It's far more in sort of response to our rhythms, isn't it, to have much longer to work on summer days and winter days. Did the unequal hours get rung by church bells as we now, I
2: might imagine, each 60-minute hour to be rung? Not exactly. So the spacing of prayers was also dependent on this system of unequal hours. For example, we think noon for us is midday, but it was originally known the ninth hour and it was originally much later in the day. But obviously, in the summer, it would be in a slightly different place because when you would start the numbering, you would start your day often the half hour after sunset on the day before. And this feels sort of more flowing and kind of natural. Do you think it was more human? I think people have said that a lot about the medieval period they were so much more in touch with nature it is true that the idea of the minute it was theoretical basically until the 16th century there was an idea of minutes astrologers used them but for most ordinary people you might measure something by heartbeats for example but a minute wasn't even really measurable until clocks got more advanced in a sense i think we have much more of an idea of parceling up our time but whether that's because you know, people like to say oh, clocks are the problem, but it's not really clocks. It's the society that gave rise to the clock.
1: Yes. Okay. I've fallen into the obvious trap of thinking that there was some golden age when things
2: were better. When did mechanical clocks then come into use? From the 13th and 14th centuries, tower clocks or turret clocks were becoming increasingly well known and cities in Italy competed to have the tallest clock or the best clock. But in terms of the domestic day-to-day clock ownership, that really starts developing much more in the 16th century. As with a lot of these things, you know, it's a very expensive, very elaborate piece of technology. It starts with royalty and with nobility. And gradually, the middling sort, the merchants and people start to have these objects as well.
1: So how common then are clocks and watches? Are we thinking that the vast majority of people would really not have thought of time in that regard. And it really is till perhaps much later in the century, something that's really only for the elite. Or actually, are people becoming in contact
2: with this kind of way of regulating time? I think because turret clocks, public clocks in urban centres are very well established by the 14th century, I think that method of regulating yourself by the public clock, that's pretty familiar. I think having a personal timepiece that is yours, that's something that comes in a bit later. And you wouldn't necessarily have that clock for the purposes just of telling the time. They do a lot more for you as a person. They show off a lot about what kind of person you are, really, if you own one of these things. In terms of their reliability, if you really needed to know exactly what time it was and it was sunny, you would probably rely on a sundial rather than your clock. Because clocks in the Tudor period are at best reliable to about 15 minutes a day. And the smaller the clock is, the less reliable it is. So if you think every component has to be made by hand, and clocks are made up of gears with tiny little teeth, and you might be able to make a gear that goes around once a minute, but can you make that gear go round regularly for a whole minute by hand? That's the question. So the smaller these things get, the less reliable they get. And so by the time you get to a watch, which is really a pocket item, that is much more about your status and your wealth, that you can afford something like that because they were not cheap, than about actually being able to tell the time.
1: So my sense with this is that I would have thought about the adoption of these equal hours, accurate timekeeping, the prevalence of these mechanical clocks as being a way of changing how people related to time. But actually you're saying we need to turn it topsy turvy. It's a society that has created these things that has changed the relationship to time and the technology
2: is following the cultural trend. It's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. These things are all happening at once and they're encouraging each other but it's not at all the case that somebody invented a clock and then suddenly everyone was like, oh, great, let's have 24 regular hours in a day. And actually, this is a very gradual change. These clock hours, as they're known, and there are lots of different ways of measuring time by a clock. There are different modes of reckoning time and they exist simultaneously together for centuries into the 18th century. It's a commonplace that different towns in England had different time zones before the arrival of the railways. It's like that only everything about time could be different in different places. Yes, of course, two
1: o'clock, two of the clock. It's a clock two o'clock as opposed to by anything else. Where were clocks coming from? Were they being made
2: in the British Isles or elsewhere? The clockmaking centres are really the metalworking centres. And in the 16th century, those were particularly in Germany, Augsburg and Nuremberg. So clockmaking in England, there's very scant evidence for it before about the 17th century. The Worshipful Company of Clockmakers was founded in 1631. And there is some evidence before that, but it's very patchy. So a lot of these objects had to be imported or they came with immigrant tradesmen whose skills were very sought after. But that's domestic clocks. So turret clocks, which are much more the preserve of, say, a blacksmith, they're much bigger, they're made of iron. There is an English practice of making turret clocks, and there's a lot of innovation there. But domestic clocks and watches, they're much more the preserve of locksmiths and goldsmiths and jewellers, people who work in very fine metals. And that's just not something that was very advanced in England at this time.
1: And how were they received beyond that sense of them lending status to one? Was this a sense that this way of dividing up time was a blessing or was it disliked in any way? Or was the fact that it was imported, was there anything negative about that? Or was it just
2: positive because it meant it was expensive? Luxury has a very ambivalent position in 16th century culture. It's associated with excess and effeminacy, which they thought was bad, and Catholicism, all these things that are associated with people on the continent. We don't really do that. But clocks are actually a little bit different because of their practical application. And because they're so mechanically advanced, it was obviously someone really clever who made these things work. So there was a sense in which they were admired for that. But it's interesting, they do get a mixed reception in English literature. So clocks are praised for being reliable. They're praised for being self-controlling. That's something which they're very interested in. But they're also criticised. And there are some very strange references to clocks being cold So there's this phrase which crops up several times in 16th century literature, as hot as toast or as cold as a clock. And it's obvious why toast is hot, but it's not that clear to me why a clock would be cold. And I suppose it could be that before central heating, metal objects maybe were literally cold and you'd be constantly touching this thing. If you had a domestic clock, so you had to wind it up every day. Or maybe it's that it coldly measures the passage of time without any resistance or kind of accommodation. It could be that, but it's a bit of a mystery to me.
1: Let's talk a bit more about these ways that clockwork figured in imaginative terms. Your work has explored the fact that many people in Tudor
2: England have themselves painted with clocks. Why? It's funny, isn't it? Because obviously, what on earth is the point of having a portrait with a clock in it? It can't tell you the time. But that is testament to the incredible hole that the clock had on the imagination. It was the most advanced machine of its time. So for all that I've said, actually, they weren't that accurate. They were still incredibly advanced mechanics. And people loved. Their mechanical systems. To review how a clock works, there were two kinds of clock in England. there was a weight-driven clock and a spring-driven clock. And a weight-driven clock relies on gravity pulling mechanism down, and the sort of rotational movement created by that pull is then converted into the movement of gears and the turning of the hands. Now, of course, if you leave gravity to its own devices, that weight will just accelerate until it hits the ground. So there had to be some sort of regulating mechanism, which was known as the escapement. And that stops this from just running on. And that becomes quite a famous aspect of the clock, its ability to control itself. Spring, a similar thing, there was a different method of controlling it, but essentially a spring would gradually unwind, and then a sort of rotational movement would turn the hands. So... In terms of their internal system, the fact that one thing moves another thing, which then moves another thing, that kind of chain of command, that really interests a lot of writers. And also the idea that you've got this clock case, and on the outside you can see the hands moving, but you can't necessarily see what's going on inside, unless the case was made of glass or Open, which sometimes they were. That again becomes a very powerful kind of idea about the body and the heavens, you know, things that we can see what's happening, but we can't necessarily see how they work. So the clock is incredibly rich as a source of metaphors in this period. And it's used to explain everything from how the universe works God is a clockmaker, the universe is this incredibly carefully crafted rotating system, or society which has the prince or the leader at the head, the first mover, and then everyone else in a good society, in a well-regulated society, turns according to that command from the first wheel. So it's quite an authoritarian model, but it's applied to all sorts of things. Sorry, to come back to your question, why would people have a picture with a clock? It says a lot about their conception of the world and about their place in it. And you
1: feel that this would have been something that the sitter was choosing to include and not the artist?
2: Yes, in the 16th century. Later on, it gets a bit different when you get star artists. But in England in the 16th century, artists were quite low status craftsmen. They really weren't respected for their sort of intellectual poetic abilities generally. But it's much more the case that the sitter is in control. They might go to a painter and say, I want a portrait done And the painter might say, I've got a selection of props for you to choose from, would you like the clock or would you like the desk tidy? So you might choose from a limited range, but quite often, I think, with these, particularly with middling and elite portraits, actually you get a sense that the sitter has asked for these props to be included and that they meant something to them. So in that sense, it's a really interesting window into a whole mentality.
1: Do we find them included more in pictures of men than of women, or is there no real gender signifying
2: going on here? That is a really interesting question, and one I have been thinking about, which is, if there is a division, I think men are more likely to be shown clocks or table clocks, particularly wall clocks, but big clocks, and women are more likely to be shown with watches and smaller table clocks. And that probably has something to do with the resonances of watches in particular, which are jewel-like objects. They overlap very strongly with jewellery and pomanders and smelly potpourri type things. So that could give them a slightly feminine edge, but also with internal devotion, which we can come on to. So I think there's an element of a kind of masculine, slightly more public time and a feminine, private, contemplative time. But it's a very rough line. I wouldn't call that a rule at all. The one that comes to mind for me
1: is Holbein's portrait of Thomas More and his family from 1527, when you've got a war clock over More's head. How do you interpret that?
2: So a lot of people have had a crack at that. And I think it's a really interesting inclusion, not least because it's hanging in front of a curtain, which actually would be a very impractical place for it to hang, which suggests there is something symbolic going on there. People have said it's indicating that Thomas More is a very temperate person. And clocks were a symbol of temperance in the Middle Ages. Again, this idea of self-regulation is what comes to mind. But there are lovely manuscript illuminations of temperance wearing a clock as a hat, which is a terrific party costume idea for anyone. So that's one interpretation. Obviously, themes of death and memento mori, potentially. But I think it's much more to do with what we were saying about society, and the well-regulated universe or society, there were comparisons later in the century between a well-running clock and a good household. And in that situation, the head of the household, in this case Thomas More, is compared to the first mover. And if he's good and he's regulating everything effectively, then everyone else in the household knows their place and follows that rule. So I think that's probably what Holbein was going for. He's saying this house runs like clockwork and it's all thanks to this guy.
1: As you listen to this, me and Team History Hit are on our way down to the Weddell Sea, joining the expedition mounted by the Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust to the place where we believe the endurance lies on the seafloor. If we find it, it'll be the greatest underwater discovery since the Titanic. So get ready. Dan Snow's History Hit podcast is the exclusive place to follow in real time the search for the Lost Endurance Shipwreck in Antarctica, with regular episodes and updates dropping in the feed throughout the month.
0: Upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's slash upgrade.
1: You threw in there, though, the mention of clocks as memento mori, and we're probably all familiar with the use of skulls in portraits to signify that. Were clocks being used metaphorically, symbolically
2: to talk about time running out? Yes, absolutely. And this is a major factor, I think, in that what we were saying about people being more aware of minutes passing, minute by minute, you can actually visualise on a clock the passing of time. That is bound to make you more aware of the seconds slipping away, effectively. So clocks definitely have a range of meanings that relate to considering how you spend your time. It's finite. God will judge you, according to the Tudor mindset. How did you spend that last hour? Can you account for it? And there are lots of prayers and commentaries that say the clock reminds us that we're going to die. And clocks themselves actually start to reflect this as well. So you can get novelty clocks in the shape of a skull. There's a really horrid one, actually, from Germany, that on the hour, its teeth chatter and a snake in its eye sockets flicks in and out. It's really disturbing, but they liked that kind of thing. And others a lot less elaborate than that, that just had mottos and things that say, time flies. But it's all designed, it's not just to get you down, it's designed to make you think... How can I be a better person in the next hour? How can I be mindful of my death so that I can go to heaven?
1: Yes, I was thinking there must be some connection with the Renaissance and the sense of classical authors becoming popular and fugit tempus or fugit irreparable tempus. time is, irrecoverable time is fleeing as a kind of import from the classical world that is starting to influence the thinking
2: of the learned in European society at this time. Absolutely. I think without wanting to set up too much of a contrast with historically people have said church time and merchants time and church time is cyclical and medieval and merchants time is modern and linear. I think that's a bit of a false dichotomy, but the church calendar is cyclical. Easter comes around every year. Christmas comes around every year. And for monks, of course, you're reliving with prayers the day of Christ's passion every day. The timing of the prayers is related to that. So I think that might have been a very different way of relating to the day. It's a do-over. You can try again. The cycle starts again, rather than thinking, that was it. (laughs) You had one chance at that hour and it's gone. And now here comes a different hour. So it may be that the clock encouraged that sort of mindset. But then, of course, the memento mori tradition is very old as well. And it just slots in quite well to something that's already very well established.
1: Very interesting I love the idea of thinking about time less as something that's running out and more as something that is repeating, and we can start again. You also mentioned the expense of clocks. And if we think about watches today, you know, you just have to see those Patek Philippe ads. There's all this idea that they are markers of wealth and status. So are they absolutely sort of signaling that as well, or perhaps even more so than today?
2: Yes, definitely. They're incredibly expensive items, and you are going to be quite a well-off person if you have one yourself. And as I said, particularly with watches, which overlap anyway with jewellery, their practical function is even less obvious than that of a wall clock. So again, it's more of a kind of frivolous thing. So it can indicate wealth, but it also tells you something about the person and their business quality. If you're a middling person and you've got this clock, it's probably because you're a merchant or you're extremely successful in your business. If you've got a clock, actually, there are other things that clock can say to your clients, and one of them is that you're a very reliable businessman. And there's a fantastic portrait of a guy called John Isham, who was is a merchant, and he's huge. He just fills up this picture basically. There's hardly any room left to get any attributes in, but they do manage to get a clock and his account books in in the background, and the clock is directly over those account books. And we know they're his account books not just because of how. They look in the picture, but they actually survive, and his account books they are his there they are in the picture, and we still have them, and they are directly under this clock and It's not just that the clock happened to be there in the background, and the picture was painted. the clock is saying, "I am very regular in my business dealings, and you can trust me."
1: That's a really interesting idea now. I want to pick up on one thing you said earlier as well, which is about the exterior of a clock reflecting its interior state the mechanics of this clock could you say a bit more about how that figured in people's
2: imaginations one of the massive concerns for protestants is are they going to heaven so if you're a catholic then believing in god is only one of the things you can do to be saved you can also do good works so you could be charitable or commission something for the community For a Protestant, the good works are no longer seen as contributing to salvation. It's faith alone is what gets you into heaven. How do I know that I'm believing in the right way? And particularly with the Calvinist idea of double predestination, which is the idea that God has already decided who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. So you're thinking, God, you know, how do I tell? Am I going to heaven? Am I doomed? And obviously there's no way of knowing. But preachers said, if you're doing good deeds that doesn't help you get into heaven, but it shows that you're probably the kind of person who is going to heaven. So the clock then becomes this metaphor for how do you tell what's going on inside from the outside? And Protestant preachers use this particularly to say the hands of the clock are moving, which shows that the workings are in order.
1: So if we take that idea with the idea you were mentioning about the businessman being regular. It evokes Max Weber and that book, The Protestant Work Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And there's that connection made between time and capitalism and Protestantism, which is ironic because when you were first of all telling us about clocks, you were saying they're slightly foreign and slightly Catholic. And, but is there a connection being made between clocks and I suppose nascent capitalism? And is this something that's specifically
2: Protestant? I think clocks definitely have a connection with capitalism, the way that they can order your time, that it made the very complex global system that we now have possible in a very kind of proto, you know, early way. And there is a kind of Protestant aspect to clocks clockmakers are almost entirely Protestant in Germany and even in Calvin's Geneva. When the jewellery trade was outlawed, a lot of these jewellers saved their businesses by making clocks. They said clocks are useful, you need a clock. So there is a sort of confessional tinge to a lot of the craft. But in terms of the clock as a symbol, that does appeal to Catholics as well. And there are lots of prayers which are written by Catholics, as well as Protestants, saying every time you hear a clock strike, you should say this prayer. And Catholics say that would give you an indulgence, which is a time of purgatory. They appear in Protestant portraits. They also appear in Catholic portraits. And um, there's a portrait of Margaret Douglas, who was Countess of Lennox, very Catholic, harboured a lot of Catholics in Edward VI's reign. And she's painted with a clock. And for her, it might be a sort of truth will out truth will be victorious in time kind of symbol. she's saying she's patient, she's waiting, but eventually Catholicism will be restored, as it was very briefly. These clocks are not exclusively the preserve of Protestants or Catholics, and they don't necessarily point to a confession at all. John Isham, who I was talking about, so he was probably illiterate and extremely indifferent to religious affairs, Catholic or Protestant, so it doesn't necessarily mean that you're either thing. But the clock, because of this one-way system, the hand is moved by the clock, the hand doesn't move the clock. That very much appeals to Protestants because of their idea about sola fides and being saved by faith alone.
1: It seems then, from what you're telling me, that the clocks at this time serve so many functions and so many symbolic roles that their role as timepieces almost seems secondary.
2: Yes, I think that's probably almost the case. I think the excuse for having a clock is it's very functional and useful. But in terms of the hold it had on the imagination, that had almost nothing to do with the fact that the clock could measure passing time. It was much more to do with the fact that it was an incredibly complex system with all sorts of innovative developments about regulating itself, as we were saying. So I think, to some degree, clocks were much more than just timekeepers. Well,
1: that seems a lovely line on which to finish. (laughs) This has been a wonderful introduction to a wonderfully sort of small part of the Tudor world that actually gives us huge insights into the broader picture. And I personally love those kind of little micro histories that actually allow you to see into the way that people thought in the 16th and 17th centuries. And I think you've
2: really opened that up for us. Thank you. When you study history, you're looking for familiar things. But for me, I think the most interesting parts of history are the utterly unfamiliar, and clocks are certainly one of those. Now, if people want to know more about your work, where should they look? I have a website, which is christinajbaraday.com. But I'm also a BBC New Generation Thinker. So I've done a few programmes for Radio 3 and discussion programmes. And the details of those are all on my website and on the BBC Radio 3 website too.
1: Well, I urge people to go and have a look at those very quickly. But thank you very much for joining me today on Not Just the Tudors. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor, and not just the Tudor, love.
2: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.